before we get started, um, I'd just like to offer you all a word of thanks um, for your prayers and encouragement. Um, the last three months have been very difficult, been very trying, but how thankful we are to to have a church family at our side, serving and loving and praying every step of the way. Don't know what we would have done, quite honestly, the last three months if it weren't for the saints around us, lifting us up and holding us, and of course for the Lord's grace and His mercies, but the Lord displays His grace to His people through you, the saints, and so I want to say thank you for loving and serving, encouraging so faithful, faithfully. You are a gift of the Lord to us, and we thank God for you. Now, I want to turn to God's Word, because where else do we go? Where else do we go? Open your Bibles with me, please, to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, and our time today, and um, not next Sunday, but Lord willing, the following Sunday, will be spent in verses 12 through 19. This is going to kind of be a, a two-part sermon to get through uh, this single paragraph. There's a clear break kind of at verse 17, and so... Today we'll focus on verses 12 through 16, and then here in a couple weeks, Lord willing, we'll pick up verses 17, 18, and 19, and we're going to look at this under the title of Fellowship with Christ. Fellowship with Christ. What a fitting message from the Lord to us in difficult times. Uh, borrowing that from verse 13, where Peter talks about sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Uh, in that, as we'll see, we get this idea that we have fellowship with and in Christ through trial and through suffering. So with that, let's get right to our text and see what the Lord has to say to us, his people today. I'll ask that you please stand with me if you're able as we read God's word. First Peter chapter 4 beginning at verse 12. This is the word of the living God. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, or a thief, or evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. I ask now that you join with me in a word of prayer. Father, we come before your throne of grace, and we come with boldness, because we come washed in the blood of Christ, 
Lord, how good it is to know that we are washed and we are cleansed and we are purified. Lord, what great hope it is, what great comfort it is in times of adversity to know that eternity is secure. Lord, as we travel on this journey of life, we know that afflictions and trials and tribulation and suffering will come inevitably. And we know that they come upon us, as your word says, for our testing. For by our testing, our faith is, is grown and proven and increased. You produce endurance, and endurance completes us. It has a perfect result fitting us for heaven. And so, Lord, as we look to your word and, and desire to be instructed and encouraged by it, I pray, God, that you, would, that you would fill our hearts and our minds. Lord, for we are in many ways, many different ways, distressed and afflicted, but we're not crushed. We're not left to despair. Lord, you promise that if you bring affliction, that you will also offer compassion and mercy and loving kindness. How good you are to us, Lord. How good you are to us. Lord, may our faith be strengthened by your word. As we think about suffering and as we think about the eternal perspective that suffering ought to cause, pray that you would use that to pull us away from sin and ungodliness and unrighteousness. That we would cut off the arm of the flesh and that we would put on Christ. That we would be found in him. That we would know him more. Lord, work in us by your spirit. Accomplish the, the work that you plan and intend to accomplish in us today, for it will assuredly be a miracle if we, your people, are instructed by your word. For we are weak and frail, but you are strong and mighty. Lord, teach us and show us Christ so that we might walk with him we might walk in a manner worthy of our calling so that in all things Christ might receive all honor and glory and praise in the church forever and ever. I ask this in his name. Amen. So as you study the Lord's word, um, there are times when you read and you study and you meditate and it becomes just so clear what the author intends to say. Sometimes that happens pretty quickly, maybe, maybe just a single reading and the meaning jumps off the pages of scripture. Sometimes it takes a little bit longer. Sometimes you've got to dig, you've got to think, you've got to consider a broader context and that's the case I believe in this portion of 1 Peter chapter 4 that we've got to see a broader context to understand the tie-in from verse 16 into verses 17 through 19. We need to understand what is Peter getting at when he links this idea of suffering and the idea of the judgment that comes both to the church and to the world. So before we dive in, I want to just kind of set that up and paint that picture so that can kind of guide our minds as we work through this passage. Also, I want to give a disclaimer that obviously this text is speaking very specifically of the suffering of persecution, but inevitably I think we will broaden out some of those applications and exhortations and encouragements to consider what the Lord has to say to us about suffering in general and the hope that we have in Christ as we suffer. 
So Peter is summarizing his letter at this point. He's really kind of getting to the end, and verses 12 through 19 really could be seen as a summary of everything he has written for the previous three and a half chapters about how we are to suffer, that we are tested, and that testing should produce joy in us. We rejoice in suffering. We live through and before the world showing Christ through every difficulty because we know that eternity is coming. So we want to showcase and proclaim Christ. We know that we have a unique fellowship with Christ when we suffer. For a master suffered and we to his people will suffer like him. Peter exhorts us not to be surprised when we suffer, to expect it, to be prepared for it. And so as we look at this passage that can help us understand how to be prepared to suffer. And the grounds of Peter's exhortation to keep on rejoicing in our suffering, the reason that we can do that is what is found in verses 17 through 19. Peter says that it's time for judgment. Judgment will begin with the household of God. But it will also come to those who reject the gospel. And so the reason that we can submit joyfully and rejoice through trial is because judgment is coming and because we who are in Christ know that there is no condemnation remaining. When you face trial, when you face persecution, when you face the most difficult of circumstances that you could possibly imagine, you do so with joy because you were promised that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Judgment comes, but you are freed from condemnation, and that is cause for joy. That is cause for rejoicing. And as we remember, as we look to the example of Christ, we think back to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we remember as Christ suffered, what did he do? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. What does Peter say at the end of chapter 4? Those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator. God is faithful. When you get bad news, when when you get news that absolutely crushes your heart and your soul, I can tell you from personal experience that oftentimes you have no response. It's hard to even get words to come. But two things we must call to mind. Two things we must hold and cling to. And that is that God is good and God is faithful. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies are new every morning. So that's kind of the tie-in of this passage. You know, you could pare it down into a single sentence maybe saying that we must joyfully endure suffering for the sake of Christ. And we do that because he has delivered us, he has freed us from condemnation, and the Lord is faithful to his people. Joyfully endure suffering because you're free from condemnation. Because God is faithful. So we're really going to just take the first part of that statement today. Joyfully endure suffering for the sake of Christ. Joyfully endure suffering for the sake of Christ. And, and really we can draw out, I don't know if we'll make it all the way through these, but we can draw out four exhortations that Peter makes in verses 12 through 16. He says, do not be ashamed or, or, or do not be surprised, first of all, when you suffer. And he says, keep on rejoicing when you suffer. Know that you are blessed when you suffer. And then do not be ashamed. Suffer as 
a Christian. Suffer as one who walks in righteousness. So let's begin at verse 12 and consider that idea. Do not be surprised. Do not be surprised when you suffer. Beloved, Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Now, if you remember, if you can call to mind what we've looked at throughout 1 Peter, it probably doesn't surprise you that as Peter moves to his conclusion, the first word that he states is, Beloved, my loved ones. He shows this reminder of his pastoral love for these saints, his union with these who are his fellow saints in Christ. And in many ways, friends, it cannot be overstated how important it is when we offer exhortation, when we offer encouragement to a brother or sister in Christ to remind them of our love. Because love, as we remember, covers that multitude of sin. So if you're bringing with you an exhortation, a call for a brother or sister to forsake sin, that reminder of love can often soften the heart. It, it can loosen and break up the hard ground that may be there, that may be caused by sin. When you're bringing encouragement, the, this reminder of your love can really deepen that encouragement that you give because you're showing the meaning and the heart behind your coming to a brother or sister. And I, just, I think it's so important to note how Peter does this. He does it very simply. He just says, beloved. It's not a flowery, long, overdone, over-the-top type of flattery. He says, beloved. It's simple and it's genuine because Peter has urgency. He doesn't have time to be over the top with his words. He has urgency and he says, Beloved, I love you. Do not be surprised. Do not be surprised. This is a Greek word that comes from the word that means stranger, interestingly enough. Um, it, it, the King James would translate this. It says, think it not strange. Don't consider it almost even as something that was an alien. And, and so Peter says, don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard. Don't think that this is something so strange and uncommon when you suffer. Be prepared. We can illustrate really the meaning of this kind of in the opposite, going back to Acts chapter 17. In Acts 17, you know that's the picture of the Apostle Paul. He is in Athens. He has proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ to the worldly philosophers there in Athens. And in verse 20, they respond. They tell Paul that you're bringing some strange things to our ears, and we want to know what these things mean. These were the worldly philosophers. They loved knowledge. They loved to just sit around with, with those um, ivory tower academic type conversations. And they say, this is strange. It's bizarre. It's uncommon. It's a novelty to us. But we want to know more because we love knowledge. We don't love the truth. We love knowledge. That's the gospel to worldly thinkers. It's a novelty. And Peter says, don't let your suffering be as the gospel is to the world. Don't think suffering is a novelty or uncommon. It is coming. It will come. You will walk through trial as a child of the Lord. The world hated Christ. Christ is our master the world will hate us as well. So Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. I don't think I'd be alone to say when you see words like fiery ordeal among you, it causes you to tremble. It causes you to stop and pause and 
Sometimes, if we're all being honest, we probably would wish that we don't see terms like that in Scripture. Because fiery ordeal really means just that. It's a burning, an intense fire, an intense heat, an intense difficulty. But in the sovereign wisdom and knowledge and authority of God, dear friends, he says exactly as he intends. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial that comes. We submit to the Lord in that. We submit to God in the face of fiery trials because God is God and we are not. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's not in the beginning that we did. It's in the beginning God did. This is his world. We are his people. So when you see something as difficult as you walk through something as difficult as what might be described as a fiery ordeal, dear friends, we must submit. And, and as you can tell by m the emotion displayed so far this morning, that submission's not always easy. It's, it's not without emotion, and that's not sinful. That's not wrong. That's not a bad thing. The Lord did not create us to, to be robots, but he did create us to be his people. He did create us to submit, to trust. He created us to know that He is God and He does work all things together for our good, for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. As those committed to Christ, we must expect suffering. And this is not some mere small difficulty some mere hiccup in life, but it can indeed be a very, very intense trial. It can be, and look around this room and know that there are many among us who have suffered and who are suffering through very intense trials. So don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, Peter says, which then comes upon you for your testing. It comes upon you for your testing. Peter's written about our testing before. He illustrated it by talking about the testing and the refining of gold back in chapter 1, verse 6. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though it's tested by fire, it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So gold is tested and refined by fire. Gold is, is tested and refined by very intense and a very specific heat. If you, go, if you get too hot, or do it too quickly, or the fire is not hot enough, the refining process of gold doesn't work. It's a specific heat, a specific application of that heat, and the trials and the sufferings and, and the testing of our faith, the proving of our faith, is the same thing. It's a specific and often very extreme heat that the Lord applies to us. It's a specific and a proper and an extreme heat that the Lord applies to test and refine and purify his people. We don't suffer only because Christ suffered, though Christ suffered and we're promised suffering because of that. But we also suffer for following Christ to be made more like him. Really, we can't stress that enough. We suffer for following and as we follow Christ to be made more like him. When you suffer, I'll pause here and we're going to go into some application. But when you suffer, when hardship comes, 
friends, it must wean us off the cares and the desires of the world. When you get news that crushes your soul, the only way you press on is that you have your eyes and your gaze fixed and set on eternity. And if you hope in Christ in that way, you purify yourself as he is pure. You forsake your sin and you follow Christ with every ounce of strength that you have because what more can you desire? What more can you do when you are crippled by trial and tribulation? You can go on in your own strength. You can pursue your own worldly, fleshly desires and passions, but you will be ground into dust because you walk only in the strength that God supplies, and God does not supply strength for worldliness. He supplies strength so that you might be purified. You can turn back with me if you'd like to read along. Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Jesus is talking to his disciples about their discipleship. About the cost of discipleship. About the suffering that they will endure. Verse 24 and we'll read through verse 28. I think there's some, really some applications that we can draw from this about how do we respond? How do we grow through suffering? Matthew 10, 24, the Lord says there, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher, and the slave his master. If they call the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather Fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. So what are some of the ways that Christ works in us through trials? Firstly, he works to produce humility. A disciple is not above his teacher. A slave is not above his master. Take upon you the role and the title and the duty of a disciple and a slave of Christ. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you at the proper time. Testing also produces boldness. Produces boldness. Jesus says, don't fear them. What I tell you in darkness, speak in light. And what you hear, proclaim it from the housetops. Do not fear, but proclaim. When you suffer, proclaim the hope that is in you, the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. As you press on through trial, boldly proclaim that the only reason, the only way I press on is because Christ is in me. He is the ultimate prize, and he is the one after whom I strive. And then thirdly, I think here, suffering produces in us eternal perspective. Produces eternal perspective. Jesus said, don't fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Again, you can broaden that out as widely as you want to go, that we must have eternal perspective. The Lord may indeed bring trials in our lives that will press us into eternity. But don't fear that suffering. Don't fear the hatred and the maligning and even the physical persecution of the world because the suffering of the world ends. The suffering brought about, whether it's through sickness or through persecution or any other means, that suffering cannot do anything but affect you today. In these few years that you travel this earth, don't fear that which can only kill the body, but fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell.
for all eternity. Fear God. Walk with God. He is indeed faithful to his people. Don't be surprised when fiery trials and, and ordeals come among you. But walk faithfully with the Lord. Let these sufferings produce their intended results. James writes about that, doesn't he, in James chapter 1? There at the beginning of his letter, he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Dear friend, do you realize that when you're perfect and complete and lacking in nothing, you're in heaven? That is the end result of trial. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials because that testing of your faith produces endurance and endurance then carries you on. The endurance that the Lord supplies, it carries you on until you're perfect and complete and lacking in nothing and you're perfect and complete, lacking in nothing because you see Christ face to face. So let the sufferings of this world work in you endurance. Endurance that carries you along until you see Christ. So Peter says, do not be surprised. And then he also says that we must keep on rejoicing. We must keep on rejoicing. Look at verse 13. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ... Keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. At the appearance of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. I want you to see before we even dive into this idea, that the only way you can keep on rejoicing is that you're one who shares in the sufferings of Christ because you are united to Christ. If you are not united to Christ, you don't have a share in his sufferings, and you have no cause for rejoicing in trial. Dear friend, if you have not repented of your sin and placed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, when trial comes upon you, you don't rejoice, you wilt. Because you don't have the Spirit of God in you. You don't have the eternal hope of Christ in you. So you must be united to Christ. You must be transformed because we are like him, but you're also then united to him in his suffering. You share in his suffering. And notice that Peter gives kind of a, a quantitative kind of qualifier to this. He says, but to the degree, to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ. Really, this just means according to how much. According to how much you suffer like Christ, keep on rejoicing. And so hear that and understand what Peter is saying. He's saying that some of the saints of the Lord will suffer more than others. Some saints live in times of peace and prosperity and thanks and praise be to the Lord, they don't suffer. The Lord may give some lives of ease, we just thank the Lord for that. We rejoice with those who don't walk that path. We also mourn with those who mourn. What this does mean, though, very clearly, is that the greater the suffering, the greater the rejoicing. The greater the suffering, the greater you're able to rejoice. To the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Keep on rejoicing. Now, let's talk for a moment about the idea of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. I mentioned it earlier, the idea of sharing in the suffering. It's the Greek word koinonia. It's the verb form uh, of this koinonia. It's the verb form of koinonia, which means fellowship. It's to be a partaker in something, to have a share in something. So you are a partaker in the sufferings of Christ. You, are, you have a share 
in the sufferings of Christ. You are united, as Paul would write in Romans 6-5, you are united with him in the likeness of his death. You're united with him in the likeness of his death. We are with him in his death, and we are like him in his resurrection. With him in death, and like him in life. MacArthur says that this idea refers to believers experiencing the same type of suffering that Christ endured, that is, suffering for what is right. We get to that idea later on in this text, but we, we share with Christ. We walk with Christ. We are united with and to Him. Really, that's, that's the greatest joy, the greatest hope of the Christian life. You are united to Christ. You're no longer united to sin. That bond of sin has been broken. Because if you were still tied to that sin, you would be tied to the debt that had to be paid. But that debt was paid at the cross. The certificate of death was nailed to Christ and it was canceled out because Christ bore that wrath. He went to the grave. He rose on the third day, and we are united with him in that new life. The life whereby he proclaimed his victory over sin and death. So to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Keep on rejoicing. Press on in your joy. That, that's in the active and the present tense. That means you're actively joyful and you keep on being joyful. You're actively joicing, rejoicing and you keep on rejoicing. You likely understand the idea of what it means to rejoice. We've talked about joy many times recently through our, our different studies in Scripture. It is the, the active joy that comes to one that has hope in Christ. It's a happiness of heart that shows forth in your life. Keep on rejoicing. Let me encourage you that you don't wait until trial comes to become a joyful person. You can't wait until you are thrust into the darkest depths of tribulation to then take on the mantle of rejoicing. If you're walking in a time of prosperity, praise the Lord that you are, but learn to be a rejoicer. Learn to walk in that fruit of the spirit of joy and happiness and thanksgiving. Show that joy in the way that you live. This is not a trite, trivial happiness. It's a deeply rooted sense eternal joy in Christ. The Lord doesn't call you to trite happiness, though he gives us things in life that make us happy, sure. But what he calls us to is a deep sense of eternal joy in Christ. Because as we see in 2 Corinthians 4, everything that happens here is light and momentary. It's light and momentary because it prepares for us that eternal weight of glory. Yeah, we are going to suffer. It is going to be hard. But keep on rejoicing because these difficulties prepare us for heaven. That's really what Peter says as he continues on. He says that you keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of Christ's glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Why do we keep on rejoicing? Because we're looking forward to a great and eternal joy. We look forward to the revelation of the joy that is only in Christ and only known in eternity. We rejoice, dear friends, not in the pleasantries of a trial, but in the glory of that is to come 
rejoice with exultation, with, with exuberance. You rejoice now, but the rejoicing you will do in heaven is an exulting rejoicing. It is a powerful rejoicing. We rejoice not with a dull or cold or inexpressive heart and mind and voice, but rather we rejoice by showing cheerful joy that is rooted only in Christ. Cheerful joy that is rooted in the truth and the glory and the gospel of Christ. So Peter says, don't be surprised. Keep on rejoicing. And then oddly enough, in verse 14, he says that you are blessed. You're blessed when you suffer. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. The natural mind sees that as a contradiction. When you're hated, when you're maligned, when you go through all kinds of various hardship, Peter says, you're blessed. You're happy. You have this joy that we just talked about. The natural mind says, no, when I suffer, when I'm maligned, when I'm slandered, I'm miserable because all my hope is here in the present. This we can rest assured that we will be hated by the world. We will be maligned. If you walk with Christ, you will be slandered, you will be hated because the world loves its sin and it hates the call to repentance. You will be maligned if you call sinners to repent. Calvin notes here that this idea of, of reproaches and reviling indicates that this is kind of a personal type of attack. And we understand that there's a great difficulty in that because that can often come from those that we love, those who are close friends or those who are family members. And those things are difficult to walk in because those revilings often can be avoided. They're avoided when we compromise Right? If you're hated for the sake of Christ, all you have to do to end that hatred is compromise. All you have to do, you can just say, I'm not going to compromise. I'll still live it out, but I'm going to be silent about it. I'm going to let that sin go on. I'm not going to go to that person who claims to be in Christ and tell him that you're living like one who is on the path to eternal destruction. I'll walk with Christ, but I'm not going to say anything. You can avoid this reviling. But to do so, you compromise. Don't compromise. Stand upon the truth. Tell the world that sin is exactly what Scripture says sin is. An abomination before God, something that he hates, something that he will unleash eternal wrath and punishment against. Peter says, when you're reviled from the name of Christ, you're blessed. You're blessed. You should be joyful. You should be happy. You should, as the disciples did in Acts chapter 5, rejoice that you had been counted worthy to suffer for his name. Remember Acts 5, verses 40 and 41, it says, after calling the apostles in, they had been arrested. It says they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they released them. And they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. They didn't rejoice because the council counted them worthy. They rejoiced because God counted them worthy to suffer. Do you love the Lord enough to rejoice that he counts you worthy to suffer? You love the Lord enough that you rejoice because you trust in his word and you know that he is at work refining and purging and purifying you through the sufferings and trials and persecutions and difficulties of life. If you love the Lord, you submit to his plans and his purposes. And then Peter gives kind of another qualifier. <clears throat> another qualifier. <coughs> 
at the end of verse 14. He says, you're blessed because the spirit of glory... You're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rest on you. When you suffer, when you suffer anyway, but especially when you suffer persecution, as Peter is talking about here, you're blessed because the spirit of God is upon you. It doesn't mean that you don't have the spirit if you're not suffering. Because to be saved, the spirit has to come and take up residence in you. But what it means is that when you walk through trial and tribulation and suffering, you're blessed because you know the nearness of God in a way that you would never know it otherwise. When you walk through trial, the presence of the Lord is known through His Spirit. The Spirit is our helper. He is our comforter. He is our intercessor. He is our advocate before the Father. The Spirit speaks to God on our behalf, and He ministers to our hearts on behalf of God. When you suffer, you are blessed because the Spirit of God will minister to your heart on behalf of the Father, the Son, and Himself, the Spirit. You walk through suffering, you are blessed you're brought to the end of yourself as we sang earlier you cling to Christ you're brought to the end of your strength and you continue on only in the strength that God supplies when you walk through suffering you know the Lord's mercies that are new every morning you know his compassions that never fail you know his great faithfulness. When you walk through trial and tribulation, you are able to understand that glorious passage in Lamentations 3. This I recall to my mind, and therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in Him. Dear friends, we have fellowship. We have union with Christ through trial and tribulation and suffering. And as we do, may we recall that to our mind so that we have hope The we recall to our mind that the Lord's loving kindnesses never cease. His compassions never fail. His faithfulness is great. It is extended to generation upon generation. May our souls wait for Him. May the Lord be our portion so that we hope only in Him. That's what it means to walk with the Lord through suffering. Now, for the sake of time, I'll just mention briefly this last point, and then we will close and move on and come to the Lord's table in just a minute. But the, the last thing to see in verses 15 and 16 is the exhortation, do not be ashamed. Make sure none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, He's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. So it's kind of a play on words there. Don't be ashamed because you're suffering for your sin, because if you suffer for your sin, you should be ashamed. Sin brings shame. So Peter says, don't be ashamed that that is the cause of your suffering, but if you suffer as a Christian, that was a term of derision, a kind of a put-down term to those earlier, early followers of Christ. They were called Christians, followers of the way. You could almost translate that, some say, as, as little Christ. Those who are under him, his disciples, his followers. Peter says, if you suffer for that, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed, but glorify God in that name. Now, we may not suffer that exact same way, but have you ever heard, especially 
in the South here, people who say in a negative way, with a negative connotation, oh, we want to, don't want to be with those people. They're too biblical. They put too much of an emphasis on holiness and sanctification. They talk too much about the gospel. They talk too much about sin. That is so common in this place that we live, and that's kind of the common thread between what those early saints suffered and how we might be ashamed for suffering for Christ. Peter's charge is clear. Do not be ashamed, but glorify God. Glorify the Lord in that name. Press on after and for Christ. So we'll drop anchor here today. And where we began, joyfully endure suffering for the sake of Christ. Expect hardship because it's going to come. But when it comes, press on. When it comes, keep on rejoicing. And do not be ashamed as you suffer for Christ. But willingly and joyfully walk in that so that Christ might be glorified in your life. Walk joyfully because you are united to him. You share in his life and his sufferings. And one day you will share in that resurrecting power fully and completely, eternally in heaven. Press on after Christ. Run your race with endurance. Fight the good fight. Keep the faith. Give of every breath for the glory and honor of and proclamation of Christ. Let's pray.